All right, gang, good morning. Good to see you guys. Uh, so, hey, before we get too much further into this, uh, elementary kids, you guys are dismissed. So, like preschool up through fifth grade, and then youth group, junior and senior high, you guys are dismissed as well. Pastor Chris is going to save you. So, just to clarify, people ask sometimes what's the difference between a regroup and a life group and a small group? And so, regroup is basically our midweek service, it's just a chance to regroup in the middle of the week. And Pastor Jeff right now is teaching through the book of Exodus, and that meets on Wednesday nights right here at this facility, but in the fellowship hall just behind this building. So it's it's more of a just a basic Bible study, but I think there's some question back and forth. It's Stump Pastor Jeff Knight, so come with all of your questions about the book of Exodus, and he'll answer them all. So that's what regroup is. Life groups, we usually have a number of them. Right now we have one main one that's meeting also on Wednesday nights, but it meets down at our church office, which is just over on Old Middlefield Way. Uh, we call it the upper room because it's on the second floor because we're super clever like that. So the life group right now is a sermon discussion group. So there's no preparation for it. If you came and you listened to the sermon on Sunday, you're already a step ahead because it's just an opportunity to talk through some of the things from the Sunday morning teaching and maybe to explore some of those themes uh, more in depth or to talk about where I got it wrong. I don't come to that one, so you guys are free to talk about whatever you want to at that one. But that's a life group. So we've got a regroup and a life group, and then the small groups are our men's and women's groups. So the small groups right now, we're going through uh, the minor prophets, and it's been really neat. We've got a men's group that meets in person on Tuesday nights at the upper room, a ladies group that meets uh, online on Tuesday nights, and then there's also a men's group on uh, Wednesday mornings online and a women's group on Thursday mornings online. Um, anyway, just some different ways to get involved uh, in the midweek if you're interested in uh, those different points of connection. One more announcement. Guys, the men's getaway this weekend. Let me tell you, men, if you were waiting till the last minute to sign up, congratulations, you did it, right? This is the last minute. So let us know today after church. All you have to do is swing out to the info table out there. Just have Helena write your name down. Uh, if I've got your name and your email address, then you'll get all the top secret details uh, probably in an email on Tuesday. It'll tell you where to go, when to be there, how to get there. Um, so we're basically meeting over at a, a little retreat facility called Camp Santa Cruz. It's right in the heart of Santa Cruz, right on the beach. Um, we start Friday night with dinner and a session, and then the main thrust of our time together is all day Saturday. So you can come for just the day on Saturday, or you can come for Friday night and stay over. We would love to have you, and again, really the only reason we need you to sign up is so that we make sure we get enough food for everybody. We're having Cole's barbecue one night and Aloha Grill the other night and Pleasure Pizza. On. Anyway, lots of great little uh, Santa Cruz favorites. So guys, we'd love to see you all there um, for that this weekend. So we've been on a bit of a break, of course, in our study through Mark's account of the life of Jesus. And this morning, we're going to extend that break even just a little bit longer for a couple reasons. The first of which, as we mentioned, next week, we're going to have a special guest speaker on a Sunday morning, which, as you know, if you've been coming here at all, doesn't happen much. I don't give up the pulpit very much to anybody. Um, you know, other guys do announcements and then sometimes an extra sermon during announcements. But for the most part, <laughs> God bless you, Don Jay. For the most part, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm pretty selfish when it comes to this pulpit, but Next Sunday, we're going to have Pastor Dave Johnston, who I served with. He's actually my pastor, so he's the tall one in that picture. But I served under Pastor Dave for 10 years, the first 10 years in my ministry as a pastor. He's actually the one who ordained me as a pastor and who taught me most of what I know about being a pastor. So all of that to say, if you guys have complaints, he's probably the one to talk to uh, next week. But Pastor Dave's coming up for the weekend to teach our men, and then he's agreed to stay over instead of going back to his own church 
now in Southern California. He's going to stay over and minister here on Sunday morning. So you'll be super blessed and encouraged by his teaching. He's a great Bible teacher. He's got a real heart for God's people, and uh, I know you'll be uh, really encouraged. So do come out next week. Um, so we're going to hear from him next week. We had Easter last week, which kind of leaves us with this weird one day in the middle of all of it. And so instead of just jumping in and, and pressing a through, few more verses through chapter 6 in Mark, I actually wanted to take this opportunity to look together at something that I do think is pretty important. And we're going to look at it together from the book of John. So if you need a Bible, um, raise your hands and we can bring you a Bible to use. You can use a Bible app on your, so we've got a Bible back here. Uh, you can use the Bible app on your phone if you want to. If you want to look it up, I'll be teaching out of what's called the New King James Version. So if you need a Bible, just keep, we've got one up here in the front, guys. A couple up here in the front. Um, John chapter 21. And what we're going to look at is a text that deals kind of with what do we do after Easter? Right? Or as we've cleverly titled the message today, Easter is over and what's next? Right? So let's pray and uh, just ask the Lord uh, to bless our time uh, in the word today. So Father, we thank you for this morning, Lord. We do thank you for all the things that you're doing uh, in our church, Lord. All the opportunities that we have to gather together. We thank you for the wonderful body, Lord, here, this church family at, uh, at Calvary Mountain View. Lord, we pray for all of these different things that are coming up, these opportunities to connect. We pray your blessing on those things. Lord, most importantly, we pray your continued blessing on our time here this morning. As we go to your word, Lord, we do pray as we do each and every week that you would be our teacher and that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church today, Lord. Speak to us, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So last Sunday was a big Sunday, right? It was Easter Sunday. It was the biggest Sunday of the year in the, in the Christian calendar, and it's the biggest for good reason, right? Because in effect, all of the rest of any given Sunday throughout the year, they all kind of hang on that Sunday, Right? It's the Sunday that we get together, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. We celebrate the resurrection life of Jesus and his victory over sin and over death. And then the unique ability that Jesus and only Jesus has now to share that resurrection life that he has with all of us through our faith in him. So Easter Sunday really is a celebration of the gospel itself. And it is a day that the church gears up for. It's a day that we look forward to for weeks in advance, right? And there are special services and special sermons and special music leading up to and certainly including that day. It's a day when people come wearing their best, looking their best. And I got to say, ladies, you always look good. But guys, some of you guys clean up pretty good, and you were looking awfully good last week. Easter is a wonderful time, right? But then, after all of that, right, after Sunday comes Monday, and everything just sort of flops back to normal. We were kind of on this high of Easter Sunday, and then that's just all of a sudden replaced with a regular old Monday. And we just kind of go back back to work and the grind just sort of starts up all over again and I know that for some Christians it can kind of feel like a real like a spiritual letdown like how we're left kind of how do we take the wonder of Easter on with us beyond that and you won't be surprised at all when I tell you that, that this feeling really in those questions were even worse on the very first Easter for the first disciples. Of course, we know that the Gospels record that in the days immediately after the resurrection of Jesus, that he made a number of these very important appearances, you know, in, in bodily resurrected form before he finally would ascend to heaven 40 days later. And just in that very first week alone, we know that he already appeared to Mary outside of the tomb. He appeared to the disciples that they were huddled away there in the upper room. And then a week later, he appeared again to the disciples with our friend, dear, Doubting Thomas, right? And that's the account that John records in the chapter just before this one. 
And all of those initial appearances took place right there still in the city of Jerusalem. And yet Matthew tells us that Jesus had exhorted and instructed the women just outside the tomb. Jesus said this, he said, do not be afraid. He said, go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and there they will see me. And so now John kind of picks up his account and he tells us in verse 1 of John chapter 21, he says that after these things that Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. So the scene now kind of shifts to the north, right? Back to this very familiar place for all of us, right? The Sea of Galilee, or also called here the Sea of Tiberias. It was named for the Roman emperor Tiberius Caesar. And it's familiar because it's precisely the place where we've been seeing in the gospel according to Mark, this is the place where Jesus did most of his early ministry. It's familiar, of course, because this was the home for most of these 12 disciples. This is the very place where their journey with Jesus had started just about three and a half years before this. And so here they are back here again. Understand that all of these men had just been through up in Jerusalem. They had experienced this series of mind blowing events, right? Starting off with the triumphal entry, right? There was this expectation of this new coming kingdom. And then there was that betrayal, right? By one of their own closest friends. There was their own near arrest. There was the denial of Peter, right? There was the agonizing crucifixion, of course, of Jesus himself, followed by his resurrection. And then these different appearances that he made to them. Right, So just a mind-blowing week that these guys had had. And let's just say at this point, things had not gone at all the way that they expected them to go. And they have probably been in hiding there in Jerusalem for all of that time. Right from the crucifixion all the way through the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, right? There were these two feasts that were kind of joined together that made for kind of an eight-day-long kind of a celebration. Understandably, these guys were confused. They were very unsure about what the future looked like. And so just as soon as these feasts were finally done, they packed up their stuff and they headed back home again to the Galilee. And I love that it was just at this point when it says here in, the, in verse 1 that Jesus showed himself again here to the disciples. Because I, I really do think that just those words are really instructive for us and they speak volumes to us as followers of Jesus in so many different seasons of our lives. Because, you know, here Jerusalem is in the rear view. All of these incredible highs and lows and this incredible season, it's all over. And now they just came back home, right? Back to the Galilee, back to normal, back to the ordinary rhythm of life. And in fact, we're going to see in a couple verses, some of them went back to their old jobs. And yet it's here, it is precisely here in the normal that Jesus again appeared to them. So I think this is the very first lesson for us just after Easter is that Jesus will meet us in the everyday just like he meets us on those special days, right? He's going to meet us in those work meetings and in those family dinners or in the classroom or, you know, in the work truck, right? He's going to meet us as we notice the sunset or as we are facing those very same trials after Easter that we were even before Easter. And the thing to understand about this is that Jesus is just as powerful and he is just as present and he is just as victorious in all those normal everyday things as he was that we celebrated on Resurrection Sunday, right? And he'll meet us just like he did here for these disciples. He's going to meet them in their time of uncertainty, in their time of confusion, when things hadn't worked out the way that they hoped they would. He's going to meet us even if our past performance has been less than our best. 
right? Jesus is going to meet us even if we fell asleep in the garden, right? When we should have been there praying with him. He's going to meet us even if we, like Peter, even if we denied the Lord right around the, the courtyard of the fires of the enemy and we fled in fear instead of standing up for him. So whatever it is for you this morning that might be in your rear view, right? Like the disciples here in their time of confusion and uncertainty, Jesus is going to show himself again just as he promised. And my desire for every one of us Right, is that Jesus would show himself, that he would appear again to you and to me just at those normal everyday times when we need it the most. Right, right in the midst of our everyday struggles. So John continues in verse 1. He says that in this way he showed himself. Verse 2 says that Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. So here are seven of the disciples. They're up here on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now we know Peter, we know Thomas, we know Nathanael, we know the sons of Zebedee, that's John and James. But then curiously, there are these two unnamed disciples, which I sort of dig because I think it kind of enables us to put ourselves in there with this group of guys, right? Maybe there is some confusion. Maybe there's some uncertainty. Maybe we are looking for the Lord just like they were. Maybe we're trying to navigate life after Easter is over. And maybe your name fits as one of these unnamed disciples. I know that my name certainly fits as the other. Right, as we're all there together in the Galilee, we're waiting, we're wondering, and it's at this very point, not surprisingly, that our good friend Peter has a plan. Look what it says in verse 3. It says that Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we are going with you also. And then they went out and immediately got into the boat. Now, John doesn't explain why Peter decided to go fishing. And trust me, there has been no shortage of discussion about it for the 2,000 years since Peter did this. Some would claim that it was perfectly within his rights, that Peter probably had bills to pay, and the best way for a fisherman to get money to pay bills would be to what? Go fishing, right? After all, why sit around idle waiting for the Lord? Let's get busy. Well, there are others who would make the case that Peter had been called from that kind of a life, right? In Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus had said to some of those early disciples, he said, follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. And so they would say, hey, this was totally wrong. Peter was out of bounds to go back to that old life. And then there are others that suggest that maybe Peter was just confused and he kind of misunderstood the meaning of this whole fishing metaphor, right? Now, for us, before we blame Peter too much, what I think it's important to notice is there is nothing specifically here anywhere in this passage to suggest to us that Peter or the disciples did anything wrong here. Right? The only thing that would tell us whether they were in the right or in the wrong would be the attitude of their hearts. If they were at the point where they wanted to just give up on this whole business of serving Jesus, then it was bad. Right? If they were simply providing for themselves and, and those near them until Jesus showed up and told them what to do next, well, then it could be good. Remember, Peter had a family to support. Undoubtedly, Peter at this point is wrestling through just the reality of his own sense of failure and of his sin there in denying the Lord. So let's try to cut Peter and these other guys a bit of slack. Remember, you're going to see these guys in heaven, right? So let's cut them some slack now as we, uh, as we read. Uh, simply to say, I think if, if nothing else, their little fishing trip shows us that they were still a little bit uncertain about what was going on. We know at this point that they have the Spirit dwelling in them, but they still didn't know exactly what to do. And yet what a change we're about to see just after Pentecost 
when the Spirit would come down mightily upon them. And then what do you see through the whole book of Acts? These guys are just nails, right? They have this assured sense of purpose from that day on. But at this point, again, if we just try to put ourselves in their shoes, they are in a difficult spot in their lives. For the last three and a half years, they have been walking with Jesus always, as we've seen, in the midst of these multitudes and miracles and just the fervor of the ministry and all of these expectations about what life is going to look like now as a follower of Jesus. And suddenly, three and a half years of all of that has just blown up in their faces. Nothing has turned out the way they thought it would. They're confused. Life has become super hard for these guys. Their lives are probably even in danger at this point because they followed Jesus. And this life that they had been in the middle of, it was a life that always required that they've just been stretched for the last three and a half years, right? Every situation, they were being challenged and they were being tested in a way that maybe somebody who doesn't walk with the Lord or wasn't following after the Lord, that they wouldn't understand. And I bring that up to say, I have to imagine there are at least a few of us in this room who at least can identify with what the disciples are going through here. So it's not really that surprising that they'd want to do something that's familiar or something that's comfortable, something that they knew how to do well and could count on, right? It's not surprising that they would look for comfort in the routine. What is surprising is that we're about to be told that they had no success in doing it. Look at the end of verse 3. Peter says, I'm going fishing. They said, we're going with you. They got into the boat. And what does it say at the end? And that night they caught nothing. So this is an all-night fishing trip with seven skilled fishermen. And it says that that night they caught nothing. So no matter what their reason was for returning to the boats, the point is they didn't catch anything. Now, It might not be too unusual for me to go out fishing and catch nothing, right? But it would be very unusual for these skilled professional fishermen to be out all night in a body of water that they were all familiar with, that they had each fished probably each and every day for most of their lives, this body of water that was absolutely teeming with fish. So it was very unusual for them to be out and catch nothing at all. And yet, doesn't this all sound just a little bit familiar? Because back in Luke chapter 5, near the beginning of their ministry with Jesus, right, Luke records the last time that they toiled all night and caught nothing. And remember at that point, Jesus said, hey, why don't you take your nets and cast them out in the deep? Which was silly because the fish aren't out in the deep, they're closer up to the shore. But what did they do? They cast their nets in the deep and suddenly they brought up this huge haul of fish. And we have to wonder if at the end of this equally unsuccessful night of fishing, we have to wonder if it may have dawned on any of them that they had been down this road before. See what I did there? If it dawned on them, like at the end of the night, if it dawned. I'll be here all week, so come back, check it out. So just that experience, I think, should have maybe given them a clue that there might have been a spiritual lesson that was about to come. And sure enough, look what it says in verse 4. It says, but when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, and yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So here they're returning empty-handed, and they're tired, and they're discouraged, and there's Jesus waiting for them. And yet, because it was dark, or because it was a distance, or because of their discouragement, they didn't recognize him. And then Jesus, in verse 5, said to them, he says, children, have you any food? Now, this would have been a pretty normal question for a person to ask a group of commercial fishermen coming in from a night of fishing. They probably assumed that this guy was one of the managers from the fish market, maybe right there in Tiberias or, or down in Capernaum, and that he was out there early just looking for the fishermen who were coming in and trying to find out what they had caught so that he could buy it and put it in the market. So this probably wouldn't seem to have been anything too extraordinary, except, of course, that it was because this was no manager from the fish market. It was Jesus himself 
who had just shown up in the everyday of their lives. And boy, doesn't he sound angry. Of course he doesn't sound angry. Look at how he addresses them. He says, hey, you bunch of backsliders. No. He says, hey, listen here, you rebels. No. He says, hey, you ex-apostles, right? Listen, my former. No, he doesn't say any of those things. What does he say? He says, children. And it's just this beautiful term filled with this familiarity and love. And I love it, again, because it reminds us that Jesus is not standing around looking for an opportunity to condemn you. Trust me, he already had one. And instead of condemning you, what did he do? He died for you. And my point is that instead of rebuking them because they were off on some faithless fishing expedition, again, as some would say, he's about to use this fruitless fishing debacle as a beautiful opportunity to teach them something, just like he so often does in my life, and I know he does in yours. It's interesting, the word children is literally like lads, we might say lads, and it was a word that was used of young men who were immature and who were in need of further instruction. And let me tell you, school was back in session, right? And Professor Jesus is standing there, and the lesson he was about to teach them was one of the most important lessons that any of us can learn as a Christian. He says, children, have you any food, right? Did you catch anything? And then these guys have to respond with what has to be the hardest word for any fisherman to ever say in response to that question. What did they say at the end of verse 5? They answered him, no. These trained professional fishermen had no fish, which of course was the entire point of the exercise because now it's time for Jesus to take over in the situation. And now at this point, look at verse 6 because he's about to give them possibly the single worst piece of fishing advice possibly in the history of fishing, he says to them in verse 6, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Really, Jesus, that's your solution. Right three feet to the other side and we're going to find fish? But now here's the thing. What Jesus just told them to do, I don't think is as amazing as what the disciples are about to do. Now look at this. This is amazing to me. Look at the end of the verse. In verse 6 it says, So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Now again, the amazing thing I don't even think is the, this totally miraculous multitude of fish. The amazing thing to me is that the disciples would even put their nets back in the water. Because understand this. This is not some shining example of their stellar obedience to the Lord because at this point, they still don't even know that it was the Lord. And we can only imagine that after a night like this that these seven tired, grumpy fishermen would probably not really be open to any advice or any instruction about how to fish, and especially not from some random guy who's standing over on the shore. And yet, in their completely humbled condition, they did it. And when they did it, they were absolutely overwhelmed by their success. And I think it's such an important reminder to us is that so often with the Lord Jesus, actually in my life, it's most often with the Lord Jesus, that he will allow us to come absolutely to the end of ourselves, where we are so worn down and we are so humbled, we are so at the end of our own natural resources and at the end of our own expertise, we are completely out of our own ideas that we are even open, desperate to just try something new. And as hard as it is, to get there, if your experience is like mine, you've got to say that once we're there, it's a pretty wonderful place to be, right? Then to allow him to speak into our lives and to be open to what it is. Now, you're wondering why the right side of the boat, right? What's the significance, you know, the right side versus the left side? Well, you can stop wondering because it's actually it's a reflective of a very simple principle theologically and a rule of biblical interpretation 
the right side of the boat was the right side of the boat because whatever Jesus says is always right. Amen? Very simple. Right? The difference isn't between the right and the left, but between working either with or without the divine direction of the Lord. And so Jesus is teaching them and he's teaching us this important lesson that when the Lord directs our lives and when it's the Lord that directs our service and our ministry for him, then we will not have any more empty nets. Right? He knows where the fish are. He knows where the provision is. Right? In ministry, he knows where the souls are that are ready to be saved. And he is always willing to direct us right to those things if we will simply let him do it. Right? And for these disciples, this was a very practical living life lesson of a primary principle that Jesus had already taught them. You remember that really powerful picture that Jesus had provided to them back in the upper room, right? This would have been just a couple weeks before this. John records it in chapter 15 of his gospel. It's that beautiful picture of Jesus as the true vine and us as the branches abiding in the vine. You remember it in John 15 where Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, and he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. And I know that I don't need to point out to all of you Bible students, because you guys already know, that word nothing in the, in the original Greek, it has a very complex, a very rich, robust meaning. And what it means is nothing. It means nothing. Like not a nothing. Which is precisely what we have and precisely what we are able to do now without the Lord Jesus. Right? That initial attempt in their all-night fishing, that is a wonderful illustration of the fruitlessness of our self-directed lives, right? With their success here that followed, when they followed these seemingly strange instructions that Jesus gave, that is a beautiful illustration of the fruitfulness of our Christ-directed lives, Right? So Easter is over, right? Jerusalem is in the rear view. Things are back to normal, but it is a whole new normal to be sure. And we need to remember that. Right? Jesus meets us in the everyday, but he meets us now in the new normal. Right? Because as post-Easter people, right, trust me, things are not at all anymore what they were at the moment that you decided to follow the Lord, right? Everything changed at that moment and you became dependent upon him for everything. And the reason for that is because your life now operates in a completely different realm. Your life now operates in the realm of the spiritual instead of in the realm of the natural. And because of that, it has to operate now in relationship to the life of Jesus, right? And it's a relationship of our dependence upon the life of Jesus. And, and without going into it, you know, to be a branch in the vine means that we're connected to Jesus, right? We share in his life. We simply abide in him, right? That means we stay connected to him. And then we allow his life to flow into and through us. And that's what produces the fruit. So fruitfulness is the result of that life of Jesus being reproduced in us, right? Where we're drawing out the very life from, from him. We, we in and of ourselves, we can't produce anything for God apart from that indwelling relationship of Christ. Have you ever, I don't know if you've had this experience, but maybe you've noticed that even some of the things that you used to do well before giving your life to the Lord, now you don't seem to do quite as well unless God is in it, right? Now, the reason for that is because he loves you way too much to allow you to have too much success without him. 
right? And the lesson for the disciples is that from here forward, nothing less than their total reliance on the Lord would bring them this kind of success. And maybe you can think about this as it relates to your own life. Maybe you feel like there's a particular area where you've been toiling and you have been working and you are wondering when things are finally going to happen here, right? Like these disciples, right? You've been working all night at, at this area, right? Understand that success for them was only a word away, right? It was three feet away just on the other side of the boat. So how is it that we find out where that sweet spot is? Well, we do what Jesus says, right? We listen to the things that he's speaking to us into our hearts through his word, right? Because those are the things that are going to move us the three feet over into that sweet spot. Maybe he's been dealing with you or maybe he's been speaking to you about a certain issue, right? But you've thought that what he's telling you doesn't necessarily relate to this challenge that you're facing or this thing that you're trying to do. Or maybe you think that the solution that he's given you couldn't possibly really be as close as it is. Right? Like the disciples, you could argue. And you could say, well, you know what? We've been doing this our whole lives and we know where the fish are. But they didn't do that. Right? What they did is they did what he said and immediately they were abundantly successful. And so too, all you have to do is decide to obey what Jesus is telling you in his word. Right? It's not mystical. It is not difficult. It's just a matter of saying, you know, Lord, I know that you've been telling me that I'm supposed to do this certain thing in this certain situation. And now I'm simply going to purpose in my heart to just do it. Right? There's no more reasoning about it. No more rationalizing. Right? It's the new normal. Right? And Jesus says do it. And what do we do? We just do it. And when we do it, then you'll know that it was the Lord. Because look what happens next. We've got this strange man standing on the shore. He gives them this crazy fishing advice. They actually do it. They have this huge overwhelming catch. And therefore, it says in verse 7, that disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. Right? John says, wait. This huge catch of fish, this sort of seems strikingly familiar. We have been through this before, right? John immediately recognized that it was Jesus, right? That he had not only miraculously directed their actions, but he had blessed their efforts because only he could have possibly made something like this happen. And yet, John would have never even known this had they not simply stepped out and obeyed and given Jesus the opportunity to work. I love that expression that if you can explain what's happening, it's probably not the Lord doing it. And I think that it's so true. We know that the Lord's hand is involved in a certain situation because it couldn't possibly be anything else. Because we know that in that situation, we have tried and tried and only failed and failed and nothing has happened. But it's when we stop toiling and we start abiding, right? We simply start obeying, then he can start working. Then he can start producing. And the provision is so miraculous that it's obvious. It's clearly not us. And we recognize it had to be him. So it's the Lord, John says. Look what happens in the rest of verse 7. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, and they were dragging the net with fish. I think it's so fitting that John was the first to recognize the Lord, but Peter was the first to really act on that fact. Right? John was kind of the contemplative one, right? He considered the situation and he thought it through and he you know, understood the details and what was happening. But Peter, 
right? And we've seen Peter make some kind of hasty decisions that didn't work out well. But Peter has this wonderful zeal that as you read the book of Acts, you can see that it was wonderfully channeled by the Lord. We've got John kind of this mystic poet. We've got Peter, this man of action, this pragmatist. And practical Peter only waits long enough, John tells us, to put his regular clothes back on. When they were out there fishing, they took off their regular clothes and kind of fished in their long underwear, if you will. But Peter throws on his regular clothes, and in his haste, John says he plunges himself in the lake, Peter does, and he starts swimming to the shore. And for all of the criticism that Peter usually gets, we got to say, I like this, because his quick action reveals his heart's true motivation. Right, Peter was willing to do whatever he had to do in order to just get close to Jesus. Peter wasn't afraid to get a little wet. Right? He wasn't afraid to leave behind what is probably the biggest catch of his entire fishing career. And oftentimes I think we can talk a big game right, about our heart for the Lord and the desire that we have to want to be close to him or about the things that we want to do for him. But I think that there maybe are some times where we need to weigh our words against our actions. And maybe there are some of us here this morning, like Peter, we might even say it's just time to dive in right, and get closer to the Lord. Right, we need to just take the plunge. Right? We need to just get our feet wet. Right? We need to just fish or cut bait, right? With the, okay. You get the point, right? It's an important one. Because when we do that, when we just jump in, what we see is that his blessings and his provision are tremendous. So we've got Peter swimming frantically. We've got the rest of the disciples dragging in this net carefully. Then it says in verse 9 that as soon as they had come to the land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it, and bread. Now, wait a minute. Okay, if you've got your own Bible, or even if you're borrowing a Bible, put a star next to that verse, because it's a great one, and it's an important one. Did you catch it? Okay, all night, catch it, right? All night long, right? These disciples are out there looking for fish. They have been struggling and straining to catch anything, while all the while... Jesus had everything they were looking for and even more right there at hand. It was freshly grilled. It was ready to eat. And he had toasted bread to go along with it, right? They weren't going to catch that in a net. But again, this is another, I think, a practical you know, a, a picture of a spiritual principle. Jesus meets us in the everyday. He meets us in this new normal. And he meets us having always had exactly what it was that we needed. And maybe you've experienced this in your life. You know, you've discovered over and over again, we go off on our own little excursions out there looking for something, and when we finally come back to the Lord, we find that he had exactly what we were looking for and what we needed, and he had it ready and waiting there the entire time. Right? But this is life after Easter, it's a life that speaks of constant fruitfulness and of provision as we just simply allow the Lord Jesus to be the one that guides and directs. And I think it's a life also that speaks not just of provision, but it speaks of partnership. Look at verse 10. Jesus said to them, he says, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Did they need any of the fish they had just caught? No. But Jesus says, let's add what you've caught to what I've already brought. And that's always the way that the Lord works, isn't it? He allows us to partner with him as we serve him. He tells them to pull in the net with the fish. But I don't think it was necessarily to cook them, but just to count them. Look what it says in verse 11. It says that Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Now, with a group of men who were fishing together, the common practice would be for them to haul their nets to shore and then to count up the fish they had caught so they could divide them up equally among one another. 
But here, in allowing these guys to count them, and then with John recording the number specifically, right, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I think that the Spirit is just driving home this ever-important point that the secret of our abundant success is simply to do the things that Jesus said to do. Just to act with this total obedience to this work. Now, it is interesting that we're given this precise number of fish that were caught. And so the question is, why? Right? And why was it 153 fish? And I will tell you that throughout the years, since the days of the early church, this number has been a field day of speculative interpretations of the Bible. Here are a few of them. So 153 is the sum of the numbers from 1 to 17. Now, some like Augustine say that it's a number representing the number of commandments, 10, added to the sevenfold gifts of the Spirit. Okay. 153 is also, it's the numerical value of the letters in the Greek words for Peter and fish. Okay. Now, some ancient writers like Jerome, they claimed that there were 153 different types of fish in the world and so this would have represented a full harvest of the entire world. That one's not bad. Cyril of Alexandria said that 100 stands for the Gentiles, 50 stands for Israel, and 3 stands for the Trinity. Now, I'm going to do us all a favor. I am going to clear all of this up. And I'm going to tell you this morning, beyond a shadow of any doubt, what that number actually represents. Okay? Aren't you glad you came? We know for certain, and we can say without a shadow of any doubt, that 153 stands for the number of fish that they caught. It's <laughs> exactly what it stands for. And it was a lot of fish. And here's the point, is that in this like search so often for deeper meaning, we can just lose the simple spiritual lesson that's right there on the page. And that is that this great and abundant blessing, we're talking about strain the net kind of blessing. It always comes when we follow after what Jesus tells us to do. And it also tells us that with God's commandments comes his enabling. So clearly this whole like, fishing story is not at all about fish. It's not at all about fishing because in the end, what we see is that the fish are virtually ignored. Now, we're not going to look at it this morning, but in the remainder of this wonderful chapter, Jesus goes on to speak primarily to Peter specifically, but to speak to all the disciples generally concerning Christian service. So that's the context of the text, just as it's the context of our entire lives as Christians. So this is what this is really all about. He's communicating to them, he's teaching them, and he's teaching us this much larger lesson about our ministry for the Lord, about our service unto the Lord, and very specifically about that uniquely Christian work of drawing people into God's kingdom through the gospel. And the, this great point that he is driving home, and we can apply it to each and every area of our lives as Christians. Again, it's that fruitlessness of a self-directed life as compared to the fruitfulness of the Christ-directed life that Jesus makes us fruitful as we simply abide in him. And we've talked about this before, but again, each and every one of us as Christians, the Bible teaches us we have a call upon our lives. And the call goes way beyond just eating and sleeping and doing the daily physical things of life. Right? Each one of us has a spiritual purpose where every one of our individual lives is now somehow, as a Christian, to be involved somehow in the expansion of God's kingdom in this world. As people come into contact with the kingdom of God through our lives. And then they hear the gospel, right? Then they themselves become a Christian. And then they are discipled in their own walk with the Lord, 
right? And, and this is the way that it works, right? And each and every one of us as individual Christians, we each have a place in that process somewhere, wherever it is, right? Whether it's in a church or at a workplace or it's, or it's on a team or at a school or in an organization or simply as a part of a family, each of us have these unique spheres of influence that the Lord has given us that we can touch with our witness of what God has done for us. And remember, just days from this point, Jesus is going to talk to these same disciples and to us, right? And he's going to entrust to us that truly incredible message of forgiveness that we're to carry out into the world. What does Paul call it? He calls it to the Corinthians. He says that God's given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. It means not holding their sins against them. But he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. We're going to see that again, Jesus is going to provide the spirit to each and every one of us to enable us to make us successful in getting that message out, no matter how difficult it might seem. Here's a tiny detail in our text. But did you notice as we read it, I know you did because you're a smart group. Did you notice that Peter was able to single-handedly do what all of the other fishermen put together could not do, right? In verse 6, it says that the disciples, all of them, were not able to lift up the nets. And yet here in verse 11, it says that Peter by himself was able to pull that whole thing up onto the land. Now, is that simply because Peter was a big old burly kind of guy? I mean, according to his Instagram, right, he is. He's a big dude, right? Or is this one of those like moments of superhuman strength where the 90-pound mom lifts the, the car off of her kid? I don't think so. Because I think to say either one of those things, we miss looking at this from that heavenly perspective of faith. There's only one likely explanation for why Peter could finally do this, and that's because Jesus had just told them to. All it took was Jesus saying, bring the fish up here. And immediately it was possible. Because just those things that the Lord speaks to us also are the power for us to accomplish them. And when we're obedient to the things he tells us to do, we see that not only are we able to accomplish it, but that not one fish is lost in the process. Right? We see that the nets always hold and the catch is always complete. And then we see in verse 12... It says, Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. And I love this, and this is always the way Jesus works. Remember in John chapter 1, Jesus said, come and see. Right? In Mark chapter 6, we're going to get there eventually, he says, come and rest. Right? John chapter 7, he says, come and drink. In Matthew chapter 11, he says, come and learn. Matthew chapter 25, he says, come and and inherit. And here he says, come and eat. Here are all these things Jesus wants to do in our lives and the things he wants to provide for our lives. And they all begin with an invitation first to do what? To come to him because all of these things come from him. Right? First we see him and then we start to rest in him and we drink initially from his goodness and then we start learning from him as he's preparing us and fitting us for this wonderful inheritance. On all the while, as we see here, we're feasting now and forever on this wonderful fullness that satisfies us. And I think just in these statements, we see that there's this beautiful progression in our walk and in our development of our relationship with Jesus. And all of those things start after Easter. Right? There's so much more that he wants to share with us and do in us as we simply start to come to him and abide in him. And the picture, I think, unfortunately, that most people have, maybe some of us even have, the picture we have of the Christian life is one where you're toiling all night and you're laboring constantly to try to please the Lord. But again, that's what the disciples did in the boat, and they failed. And the picture that the Lord gives us is very different. 
right? He invites us to dine with him. He provides the food for us. He even serves it to us because he's preparing us for the calling he has for us because it's only after we've been fed that we can go out and feed others. And it's only after we're able to share those kinds of intimate times of fellowship with him that we truly know and experience him. Because look what it says in the rest of our text. He's invited them now to share this meal with him. Look at the end of verse 12. It says, Yet none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. And this is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, if you visit this particular area of the Galilee, which you will in January if you're going with us, but what you find is that this particular spot on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, it is just adjacent to that mount where we just studied in Mark chapter 6, where Jesus had just fed the 5,000, right? And he fed them this exact meal of bread and fish. And in fact, as the disciples are here on this morning being served by Jesus, as they gazed across, what would they have seen? They would have been looking at that very hill where this had happened. And we can't help but try to wonder if as they ate, right, and as they're trying to reflect on all the things that have happened to them, not just that day, but all of this other stuff that had come before this day as they're just trying to kind of process through all of their disappointment and their confusion and their uncertainty and their anxiety and all of the stress and the struggle that has been a part of it. And yet here they were again with the Lord. And I think that he's reminding them that so often it's from the hardship and the sacrifice and the difficulty the difficulty that's involved in just staying true to that call of God upon our lives. But it's from all that that we find that there is not a richer or a fuller or a more wonderfully abundant life that a person can possibly live. That there's an intimacy that's found with the Lord that comes directly as we surrender to him. It's an intimacy that we wouldn't otherwise know apart from those times of sacrifice and from those times of difficulty that the disciples had just been through and from those times of us simply abiding in him through all of it. There's a, a, a knowledge and there's a relationship that we discover there in that place and that we start to grow in as we move forward then from Easter. Because that's when we really start to experience his resurrection life living through us, right? He meets us in the everyday. He, he meets us in this new normal. He had everything that we needed all along and he makes us fruitful as we abide in him. Now, as we close, I was reading this week and I found this neat article about how the early church made this lesson, I think, even more visible. You know, we celebrate Easter as one day in our calendar, but the ancient church they celebrated Easter for an entire week. And the week-long kind of Easter celebration, again, it was the most important feast on the entire church calendar for the year. And what's interesting is the focus of that week-long Easter celebration was on the people who had just given their lives to the Lord and had been baptized right there at the Easter service. And what they would do is that those brand-new Christians would wear their white baptismal robes all the way through that entire week. So that all of their new brothers and sisters in the faith, it would be an opportunity for those more seasoned saints to kind of vicariously live through these new believers as they reflected on their own baptism and the joy of being newly in Christ themselves. And then at the end of that first week after Easter... So not at all, unlike a day just like today, as we're here for us, they would get all of those new Christians together with the church, and they would take off those white robes and be back just kind of in their everyday street clothes. 
But at that point, the, the priest or bishop or pastor or whatever it was would exhort them with these words from Paul's letter to the Galatians. He would say, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And the point of it was to remind them that even though they were taking off those beautiful white robes and they were going back to kind of their, you know, everyday work clothes, right? Their work-a-day lives. Even though the great feast and the festival of Easter was finally over, that they were to continue to be an Easter people, right? The robes were gone, but they were now forever clothed in Christ. And they and we can now walk in that same white robe kind of newness each and every day, even after Easter is over. Amen? Amen. So, Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, and we thank you for the tremendous encouragement that it provides to us, Lord. And, and I do pray, Lord, that if there was anyone here, Lord, who was feeling a sense of, of kind of a spiritual letdown after Easter, Lord, or, or we just wonder where do we go from here, Lord? How do we get back into the regular rhythm of life, Lord? I pray that this text would be an encouragement to us, Lord. I pray that you would speak to us, Lord, on these things, Lord, that you would help to write some of these truths in our heart as we reflect on them this week. And so, Father, we pray you would do that now. And we thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.